This is The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net and in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Numerous organizations, including courts, are embracing diversity, equity, and inclusion. With that increasing acceptance, we are also seeing increasing resistance, and it is important to address that resistance directly. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. In the December episode, we discussed the question, can hiring criteria, particularly for managers and supervisors, be objective? This month, we're going to explore the growing question, is diversity, equity, and inclusion a zero-sum proposition for white employees? Michael Norton and Samuel Summers, both from Harvard University, surveyed 417 citizens on their conception of racism in America. Several of their conclusions are worth noting. Overall, anti-black bias has been declining over the years. White responses perceive that anti-black bias has been declining at a rate even faster than that shown in responses from the group overall. Black respondents perceive anti-white bias as almost non-existent. However, white respondents perceive that anti-white bias has been growing since the year 2000. Whites now see anti-white racism as a bigger problem than anti-black bias. And anti-white racism is seen as a zero-sum situation. This is encapsulated by a quote by ex-U.S. Senator and ex-U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who said, Empathy for one party is always prejudice against another. Here to discuss this question are Stacy Fields, Court Administrator for the Municipal Court in Crestwood, Missouri. Zanel Brown, Executive Court Administrator for the Third Circuit Court in Detroit, Michigan. And Christy Collier-Tucker, Court Administrator and Clerk of Court for the Municipal Court in Union City, Georgia. Thank you all for joining today's episode. I mentioned the Norton and Summers survey in the introduction. Whites see racism as a zero-sum game that they are now losing. Regardless of the facts on the ground, this perception of anti-white racism is real. What can and should we say to respond to this perception? Zanelle Brown? I hear that analogy, and I want to say that probably... If you look at that analogy, then you're going to marshal evidence to sort of support it. But if you look at other analogies, if you start from a different place of thinking that, you know, what we're talking about isn't these limited resources, that we're really talking about putting together collective energies to build synergy to create more opportunity. So it may look like right now that you only have 100 customers that are interested in your or your product. But if, say, for instance, you diversify, you open and you expand the pool of potential customers. So I think it just, it determines where do you start? Where do you start? Are you going to start for something very positional? Or are you going to look to what's the end goal? We want as many customers as possible and how to get there. And I think by having that view, you'll have a more expansive view and you won't see that for me to get something, I got to take something from Peter. Christy Collier-Tucker? 
Um, I, I totally agree with what Zanella is saying. I think that you can't tell someone how to feel or what they feel, right? So mm-hmm. I think that we have to start focusing on the hard conversations. I think we have a lot of conversations about how people feel and all of that, but how are we starting solution-based conversations? Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the best way to start dealing with the real perception and how people feel about it. Because we have a lot of conversation, but there's nothing that's really solution-based. National demographic projections are forecasting that by the year 2043, America will have collectively more minority groups than white folks. America will be a majority minority country. Do you think that this point in time will spark change? Stacey Fields? Speaking particularly about the demographics and viewing it through a lens of the differences, America is not exclusive to the plights of racism and poverty. And that's what I think that we have to begin to view things under a different lens. What are the commonalities? What are the things? If someone wants to be racist, it doesn't matter skin color. It doesn't matter. They will look at the community you come from. They will look at the country you come from. If a person wants to, to deal with their insecurities by denying other people rights, then they'll do that. I remember growing up, we heard, I heard that America was a melting pot. That automatically put in my mind that at some point, there's some kind of commonality. There's something that's bringing us together. There's something that we're working with. And I think as long as we are viewing things through a, a lens of our hurt and pain, we're going to limit the growth that we can have as a people, as a country living in within the same community. In order to change, we can't come with the same mindset that brought us to this point. We have to view things differently and we have to get back on the basis that's measurable. Injustices, injustice period changes how things are viewed because it doesn't matter what race you come from, what area you come from. If something's unjust, it's unjust. And when we start fighting on a higher level, then we'll start seeing more of the results that we want to see as a community. Christy? Once again, I I piggyback off of what Stacey says. I agree 100%. I think it also starts with, well, starts at home, right? So I used Mm. to be a kindergarten and first grade teacher before I came over to the legal field. And one of the things that you always notice is with children, they love everybody. They come mm-hmm. in the room, they hug their best friend, black, white, Hispanic, whatever they are. They don't care. They just love that's their friend. And so it all starts at home. And so the problem that I think we're going to have going forward is what's being taught at home and how do we change the home base? Oh, and yes, then yes. we can move on to the next, the next level. It's going to be hard to change adults, right? So we know that just in everyday life, right? Being in the courts, we know it's hard to change adults. But starting at the home base, when the kids are coming out the womb or when they're in kindergarten, how do we start there changing the perception of race and ethnicity going forward? That's how we've got to start. I just want to add, I totally agree with um, what Christy was saying, that if we continue the behaviors that we have right now, it's not going to make a difference who is the majority as far as numbers. It's the thought processes. If we don't change what our perceptions are and start behaving differently towards these ideals we say that we espouse, we just end up with the same thing repeating. In her book, The Sum of Us, 
Heather McGee describes numerous examples of systemic bias, from redlining of home mortgages, to the long history of voter suppression, to inequitable school funding. However, I must confess that as I read her book, I felt the discrimination seemed to tend more toward class than race. As a society, do we have an antipathy to the poor that is an aversion even stronger than racial bias? Zanel? I would say both exist. There's an aversion and antipathy towards race as well as social class, but I think they're intertwined. And when you try to separate them, it's almost like, well, which one is worse? They're both bad. Mm -hmm. I don't know which one is worse. And I think even when you look at the social economic, you'll still find racial pieces there that if someone is poor and white, they still feel it's better than being poor and black, that type mm -hmm. of thing there. So I think that, you know, if we focus on tackling both of the issues, we'll get somewhere. If we focus on tackling race, I think we'll end up tackling social economic issues as well. Stacy. I agree with Zanelle, and I looked at it and thought about it. Poverty is almost more of a measurable metric. And this is what I'm saying, a measurable metric. You can look, and that could be globalized, because what you could would consider wealth in one area may not necessarily translate to wealth in another area. Race is a, a little different because we look at colors of skin. But what happens when you move to another area where the colors of skin are the same, but maybe there's just different tones and you're still having those experiences. So I think that as we begin to come out of ourselves and understand that there have been oppressions, there have been things that were just horrible that were done and some things that are continuing being done. But acknowledging what's going on and acknowledging that pain does not mean that the next generation can't be part of the solution. It doesn't mean that these people are blind and can't see that these injustices are being carried out. Because what I think puts us in a kind of narrow spot sometimes is where we're coming, where we're having conversations about zero-sum theories, where we're, we're having these conversations, you know, about theories, about things that we see. What about the person who appears to be rich and really are actually working poor, but they just look a certain way? What about people who are biracial who may look a certain way and they really are from a mixed culture or maybe from another culture? You know, those are the things, the issues with the heart, dealing with family, some things that intrinsically deal with who we are on the inside, once that's dealt with, will translate to the outside. But we can use some metrics like things that are unjust, what is fair. There are some things, if you didn't put a color to it or a socioeconomic background to it, and you looked at it, everyone across the board would say that is unjust or that is systematically unjust. When we could start having those conversations, again, I think that we would be able to move forward and really make some significant change. There's an adage that says that there is strength in numbers. Having said that, I have not sensed a pronounced movement to partner with other minority groups, such as LGBTQ, Latinx, or women's rights. Am I missing this? Or in the alternative, why hasn't there been more of a movement toward partnering? Zanelle? I, I really like that question, Pete. Mm -hmm. And I think it looks at, you know, who's willing to be allies. And that can fluctuate 
according to what's going on in, in society, what seems to be the topic or the diversity dimension of the day or something like that. So think about when you saw the killing of George Floyd, everybody rushed and said, hey, we're allies, Black Lives Matter. As it goes down, it like it's not convenient anymore. Um, some other things have happened. A pandemic is still going on. We need to address that. So I think that what you're seeing is real. And there's certain um, identities people feel it's okay and safe to say that I'm going to be supportive of that based upon what their community and their culture and their background and belief embraces. There's other ones they're not going to say as quickly, yeah, I'm gonna you know, use my voice to speak power to that particular cause. I think when you see the women's rights, when you look at where women have gone, I think women have a very strong allyship as well as a very strong group. But when you start looking at the intersectionality of women and where women rights are going, you see some breakdown there. So I, I totally agree with you that there is an opportunity for a lot more partnering. And the partnering, the strongest partners are usually the people who are outside of the group because they have the access and the influence and the historical privilege to which to lend this group whatever benefits that they can. And until we start doing that, those groups are going to continue to be marginalized. So you're right in what you're seeing there, I believe. Christy? I have to agree that you're, you're absolutely right, but I want to give another perspective. So there's also the old adage of every man for himself, right? And so I think that we've gotten into our own little boxes where everybody, you know, if you're Black, you're Black Lives Matter. And if you're Latino, then this is that. And if you're LGBTQ+, then you're this box. And so what we have to start realizing is that as a Black woman, I'm a Black woman, I'm Black, I'm a woman, you know, I may be under 40 or I may be under 50 or maybe over 50. So then there's the age factor. So we've got, some of us are in a lot of boxes, you know? <laughs> and so we've got to think about that from um, the perspective, like Zanel said, it starts with outside of the group, right? So maybe the leaders are focused on those groups, but we as individuals need to maybe come together and say, you know what, I'm in a couple of boxes. So let me, mm -hmm. you know, pull in a couple of these boxes and then maybe then we'll start partnering, right? Because you may be a black woman who is also LGBTQT, right? So mm -hmm. you just got to start putting all the boxes together. We are so, I think we've just been a country of everybody's in their own little world. Mm -hmm. And we've got to start stepping outside of those boxes if we're going to make any difference on coming together and, and making change. And I think something else, Christy, because you've been in a box, you know what it feels like. So Absolutely. do you want others to be put in a box? It's just a box right. with a different label on it. But do you want right. them to be put in a box? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think we get exhausted, too, because you say, well, I don't have time women's to work on women's right. I got to work on the black right. And then I'm an LGBTQ. Then I got to work on that, too. You get exhausted because you still got a family. You got to work. <laughs> you got to do everything else. Right. So we've got to figure out how to combine the boxes so that we can all fight for change together. Oh, and I just have to tag on because this is really a good conversation. But it also, when I looked at that um, and think about that question, I think about the fact that you do, it has a lot to do with what you identify with, what you identify with and what's attached to that identity. 
you know, that there are certain aspects of that, or maybe that community you a person may feel more comfortable with and the naturally more aligned with. So then they can have, a, you know, actually very valid places of, of discrimination or challenges. But then you have another that you may not necessarily feel passionate about. So then you're scrambling, trying to find a way to balance all of that. Like, mm -hmm. am I black enough? You, you know, am I aligning with, you know, this particular group as a woman? Am I female enough? What does it mean to be a female? Because everything is constantly changing. But when we look at those higher principles, you know, of what it is, you know, things that we really want to stand for, when we looked at that, we can collectively come together under that umbrella. And I think, Zanel, um, if that was a perfect um, example with George Floyd, at that point, everyone knew that was wrong. Intrinsically, mm -hmm. that was wrong. No one should feel unable, not only for the, you know, for George Floyd and what he had suffered, but the people who stood by who felt helpless, that they couldn't do anything to help because of, you know, that circumstance. So everyone got under that umbrella. And then in order for us to, to get along, then people said, well, I've been hurt more than you. So I think that you need to acquiesce to me because I've been hurt more than you. And I think when we start getting into that, you know, we start moving into more elementary things, not unlike preschool, you know, like you, you hurt me, you hurt me, and, and I need you to hear me. And sometimes we just need to realize we're fighting the same fight when we look a little bit higher than what our pain is. There are other specific efforts underway, such as ban the box to stop companies from using felony convictions as a bar to employment and scrap the paper ceiling to stop companies from using a college degree as a requirement for a job. Do these movements help or hurt diversity, equity, and inclusion? Stacy, I think that there has been some prejudices in some ways that that was used, you know, to work against it. But if we look at it in a broader sense, I don't think necessarily scrapping that is gonna help diversity, you know, and equity and inclusion or not. And this is the reason why, depending on the type of felony someone has committed, realistically, we are looking and rooting for someone to better their lives and do better. But if you have a particular type of felony and you've embezzled, I'm probably not going to want to hire you in a bank. And it doesn't have to do with your race. It doesn't have to do with your, you know, even you serving time, but that might not be a best practice. You may need to be in another portion or another place. Scrapping the ceiling, I think it's going to be a challenge because if we look at the national debt for student loans, we have people who are hiring in at positions. If they have $120,000 or more in student loan debt or even less than that, and someone comes in, even though they may particularly have skills and, and have a skill set, sometimes they still may not they may say on paper, I'm not going to pay attention to that, but they're looking at, okay, when you walk in, if I look and see you have um, a resume, you know, and on the resume, you've gone to the same college I've gone to. That speaks to the culture. I have an idea of what your ideas are. This kind of gives me a little bit more leeway on, okay, I don't have to build a bridge to you as much because we come from the same area. And 
I don't think necessarily, I think that all doors should be open, but I think that interconnectedness of us internally making changes and making connections personally on a one-on-one -on -one level would be more beneficial for that. On paper, yes, it would be good to exclude those, but we do, we can't overcorrect the mistakes that we've made prior. We have to look at what's what can we really do on a one-on-one -on -one basis to really open some doors? And like Zanelle said earlier, create opportunities for people to be able to move forward so that we can, you know, have a much more diverse workforce. Christy? I think it's a, a double-edged sword, kind of what Stacey is saying. You know, you, you have those, if you've got a, you know, embezzlement, then yes, you should not be working at the bank. On the <laughs> other hand, you know, when we look at the statistics of who is incarcerated and who has the felonies, then we have to look at how is that really benefiting those people, right? Because mm -hmm. depending, if you're in California, there is, I think, a 23% of Hispanics have felonies. In Georgia, it's 23%. Of the 8% of felons in Georgia, 23% of those are Black. And 40-something percent is Black males. So you're talking about a huge mm -hmm. population of people who cannot work in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. So I really would stress to some of the smaller companies or your dollar generals, your family dollar, those companies, they're not small companies, but those places where it may not matter as much, certainly they can't come and work for the court, you know, but maybe mm -hmm. they can go to dollar general. You know, I think that we all need to maybe have some hiring practices that are a little bit more strategic for those kind of situations. Because no, they can't come out and go to just any job. So you do have to have it there, but at the same time, they need to work. They need to come out and work, right? And be a productive member of society so that there isn't recidivism. So there, it's a double-edged sword on how you handle it, but I, I really would implore some of these companies that don't need as much of a stringent policy to kind of create something for those. And you have a lot of nonprofits that do that, which is great, but it, it's just kind of one of those things that we, we have to be very careful about. So Peter, I would add that our court is going to have a program where they're working with companies. So instead of people being incarcerated, that they can actually have jobs. And so they, they can be a productive citizen. And the other piece I would add is that, you know, oftentimes we have nice slogans, ban the box, scrap the paper ceiling. We need to have further discussion on those. There usually isn't a one size that fits all. We need to see if there's some systemic issues underneath there and then choose, you know, are there bona fide reasons why we have employment restrictions? Is there a bona fide reason that this job requires a college degree, That's but good. maybe another one doesn't? And I think sometimes we default to what's convenient and easy, but just like this conversation, there's a lot of viewpoints. And if you can get all those viewpoints around the table and everybody has an equal voice, I think you'll end up with some great conversation and some solutions, just like Christy was pointing out from the beginning. You got that solution-based conversation going and we can solve some problems. Finally, what advice do you have for those tuning into today's episode? Zanel? Again, there's a lot of different perspectives the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation and to talk about not just what sounds catchy or what's the fad of the day, but really look at some data and start dissecting that and start working towards solutions. I think that's what our goal is. 
Christy? Uh, for me, I just want people to take away that we've got to start having the tough conversations. Um, we have a lot of, you know, I've heard about this or I feel this way, but we've got to start really having the tough conversations that are about solutions. So how do we, you feel this way? How can I help you? Or how can I make you not feel this way? How can I, you know, in the, in the white, um, the white bias, uh, zero sum game, how do I not make you feel like that is an issue? You know, we've got to start having those tough conversations. It's going to be feelings hurt and all of that, but it's going to get us to a different place if we get, if we're able to talk about solutions. So, and it starts small, start with your, you know, your circle, your, your group of fans and start with your coworkers and then, you know, take it to the next level. I just think we need to have real honest conversation and we've got to start small, but we've got to just move it in place. And this is a great start um, because this will reach so many different people. I think this is a great conversation to start it. Stacy, I really thought about this and I was, um, I was just doing some research and I, um, discovered some stuff about um, Charles Hamilton Houston. And he was a World War I vet veteran. He was stationed in France. He was a black American. And when he came back over, he said he didn't understand, you know, and he was kind of angry because of the, tr the hatred and treatment that he received as a black soldier. And when he came back, he said, why should I die for a country that would basically people who would treat me this way? But what he did, he ended up becoming the dean at Howard University. And he went there with the thought of empowering people and making the black attorneys that were going there um, and teaching them and training them to become social engineers. And that immediately made me think about building. He went back with a purpose to build. And it wasn't to destroy who he had perceived to be the, you know, the the people that were that were spouting the hatred. He said to destroy segregation. And out of this group of attorneys came Thurgood Marshall. Now look at at his um, perspective. He had experienced this great amount of pain. He had gone through these trials, but he came back to not destroy people, but to destroy a principle that was bringing separation with people. And out of that came Thurgood Marshall and so many others that were on the forefront of social justice issues. That's the kind of um, transformational thinking, having hard conversations like we're having, bringing different perspectives, you know, and, and having the conversations and saying, hey, what can we do to help build bridges and not burn them down and not burn down infrastructures? How can we build better? And I think that that's key and part of this podcast and being a part of this panel, I think shows the significance. We're all from different areas and different points of view, but I believe, you know, are saying the same things. How do we build better and how do we build people so that we can have better? As a final note, NBC News reported that in 2020, there was a surge of companies hiring diversity officers. There was a 55% increase in diversity roles in companies as a response to demands for greater racial equity. However, recently, employees are now being moved out of diversity roles as the economy remains fragile. In just two years, the diversity roles in companies have dropped by a third. There is an even more disturbing note. 
If there is one job in a company where one would expect overwhelming minority representation, it would be in a company's diversity program. However, Black employees hold less than 4% of the positions responsible for promoting diversity in companies. Nearly 8% of those positions are held by Latinos, and nearly 8% are held by Asian employees. More than three quarters of all diversity positions in companies are held by white employees. We've made a lot of progress, but it appears we still have a long road to travel. I want to thank Zanel Brown, Stacy Fields, and Christy Collier Tucker for discussing their thoughts, opinions, and experiences on the debate over this most difficult topic. This issue is not simple nor easy to address, but it definitely needs to be examined. As always, my thanks to you, court professionals, tuning into today's episode. As I said, this perception is real. And I know you discuss this issue with your coworkers in the mature atmosphere that it deserves. Thank you. Join us on Tuesday, April 18th, for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.